We are going to be in Acts chapter 5 today. Uh, that's where we'll be today. You know, if you've been here for the past few months, that we've been walking straight through the book of Acts. Our last Sunday in the first part of the book of Acts is going to be next week. Okay, We're going to be talking about how deacons came to save the church, so be ready for that. That's what we're talking about next weekend. But today, we're going to be talking about this topic, what it looks like to be all in for Jesus. Okay, That's where we're going to be today, what it looks like to be all in for Jesus. We're in a series, as Matt said a moment ago, called You Are Sent. We've been talking about how the church is a movement, and movements are supposed to move. That's what we've been talking about, how we view in our culture a church as a building with brick and mortar, but it's really not that at all. It's a people that have been baptized, placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that are on mission together, and that's why we started walking through this book, so that we could have a better understanding of who the church is and what our role is in the life of the church. So we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 5 today. Now, as we've been walking through this book, it's been a fun ride, hasn't it? Well, that fell flat. It's been a fun ride. It really has been. I know that many of you, I shared this this week, um, someone was asking me about the kind of feedback that I have gotten from this particular series, and I wanted you to know the same thing I told them is we've actually received so much positive feedback from this series, and when you, when you typically get a lot of that kind of feedback, what happens is that's usually an indication to you that God is using it to shape and to mold us as a people. So I'm certainly appreciative of that. Um, but it has been a fun ride. I mean, think about all the things that you and I have been able to see through the first few months of the book of Acts. Just, what, now four chapters of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we saw the birth of the church, and we were able to walk away from that with a better understanding of where the church came from. Now, we know it went all the way back to the Old Testament, the days of Abraham, uh, but the church as you and I know it, the local congregation, it goes back to Acts chapter 2, and we got to see the church born there. But we also got to see the Holy Spirit's arrival, and wasn't that interesting? The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit uh, came upon the earth, um, what happened? It said that it came with, with a, a wind that sounded like a tornado, that it was an undeniable evidence that something was happening, namely, the Spirit of God was here, and, and accompanying that wind uh, was actually flames of fire that were sitting above people's heads. You remember uh, when Moses was called by God, and there was a bush that, that God spoke through that was burning, but it was not consumed? The same idea now is sitting above the heads of 120 followers of Jesus in the upper room. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. That's a pretty cool thing, right? So it's been a fun ride in the first two chapters of Acts, but then you get to Acts chapter 3 and to Acts chapter 4. And if you remember in Acts chapter 3, we saw a lame man, a man who was crippled since birth. He's now over 40 years old. The Bible tells us that. Uh, was actually healed of his disease. Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple. They cross this man every single day. And then when they cross him this one day after the Spirit came, Peter engaged a conversation with him, told the man, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy got up, and the Bible tells us that he started leaping around, and he was praising God. And it was, again, undeniable that the, that the Lord was working. There was a movement happening. God was doing something. And there was no denying that this man who had been paralyzed, who had been in that temple square day after day after day for years upon years, was now healed. Well, as you know, because we talked about it, this really ticked the religious leaders off. They didn't believe in Jesus. These guys were Jewish. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in miracles. They certainly didn't believe in healing. So what do they do to Peter and John? They throw Peter and John in jail for a night. Again, a fun ride so far. This has been a lot of ups and a lot of downs. So they throw Peter and John 
in jail for the night. Uh, but what does God do as a result of that? The Bible tells us that he saves 5,000 people. Specifically, 5,000 men. We have no clue how many women and children were in the crowd that day. Back in Acts chapter 2, we saw 3,000 people saved. And it's neat just to see how this ride has been so fun. But here's the deal. Today, it's going to continue to be fun, but it's not going to be necessarily a fun ride. It's going to feel more like a county fair ride. You know what that means? Like you still get off the ride and, and you're kind of smiling about it, but you know that you got like a, a kink in your back and your neck and everything else hurts because the ride isn't really that fun. Fair rides are not fun, by the way. We just had a fair here. We had a fair in Perry. If you went to that and you got on it and you're over the age of 30, you know that you feel it for days and nothing about it is a delightful experience. But you wear the smile for your kids, right? Because they think it's absolutely fun. Their bodies are flexible and ours are not, right? So it's going to feel like a fair ride. There's going to be some things today that are said that are going to feel a bit tough. There's going to be some things that are said today that are going to be a bit challenging, a bit convicting. And you're thinking, well, isn't that most weekends around here? It, it certainly is. That's what the Word of God should do. But today is going to especially be that way. And here's what we're going to be talking about. I told you at the beginning. We're going to talk about what does it look like to be all in for Jesus. What does it look like for you and your spouse and your family and for me and our staff and our church? What does it look like for us to be all in for Jesus? No games. No pretending. No more mask. No more facade. Just all in for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says this. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. We can stop there. Anytime you come upon a chapter and it leads with the word but, a conjunction, you need to look and see what that word is there for. You've heard this when you see the word therefore. You've got to look and see what it's there for. Any conjunction, and, but, anything like that, you want to go back so that you're reading the text in its proper context. So what the author is doing here, what Luke is doing here, is he's showing us that Acts chapter 5 is connected to Acts chapter 4. Now, your Bibles that you hold in your hands, they have paragraph breaks. They have paragraph numbers, or they have chapter numbers, and they have verse numbers. Back in the original language, none of that existed, okay? So all of this was just interconnected. It all, it all blended together. So here... The luxury that you and I have is this broken up for us, and Acts chapter 5 is directly connected to Acts chapter 4. But there's something else that Luke wants you to know. Luke wants you to know that the story he's about to tell you stands in stark contrast to the story that he just told you. We talked about opposition last week breaking out in the life of the church. We didn't get to the end of Acts chapter 4, so I want to cover it briefly this morning as a way, a segue into Acts chapter 5. So let's look back at Acts chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. It says this, For there was not a needy person among them, talking about the church, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. What you're seeing here in the life of the church is that the gospel of Jesus is gripping the lives of those who call Jesus Lord, okay? They've been saved and bought by the blood of Jesus. They've been baptized into his fellowship. 
And what you're seeing is that the gospel of Jesus is now gripping their life, and it happens to us too. This is something we need to understand as a church family this morning. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be the most generous people on earth. Now, I know that we don't like to hear that, but it is so true. As followers of Jesus Christ, you and I ought to be the most generous people on earth. See, as we grow more aware of who Jesus is, as we grow more aware of what Jesus has done for us, there's really only two inevitable things that should happen as followers of Christ. The first is our grip on things is loosened. Our grip on the things of this world is loosened. And second, our grip on the things of God and even his people is tightened. This is what happens when the gospel of Jesus takes root in your life. All of a sudden, as a born-again believer, you become generous because the things of this world are no longer important to you and the things of God have great, great value to you. In other words, you're allowing your, your grip on the things that don't really matter to be let go and you're grasping hold tightly to the things that do actually matter that have eternal weight for eternal glory. So our grip on the things of the world is loosened. Our grip on the things of God is tightened. And we've seen this pattern throughout the book of Acts. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, you see in Acts chapter 2 that these born-again believers had great uh, care and concern for one another. And you see all these one-anothers that begin to occur, how they cared for one another. There was this genuine, real, true concern for each other. They were selling their possessions, Acts chapter 2, so that they could bless each other. They provided for one another. They cared for one another. They treated one another as true brothers and sisters, as a part of a family. You know how sometimes we'll hear the phrase, or sometimes we'll say the phrase, that the body of believers, the church, the saints of God, we should be like a family. You've heard that? Well, the truth of the matter is, is we should not be like a family. We actually are a family. And we need to treat each other as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So these people, they weren't like a family. They genuinely were a family. And what would this cause, what, what would cause them to do this? What would cause them to be this generous? It's simple. The men and women of our text in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 2, in the book of Acts at large, they understood that they were the recipients of the most generous gift given to all of humanity at the hands of God. And that was the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and their salvation and their reconciliation to God and to one another. And they understood that since we now are the recipients of the greatest gift given to us by the greatest gift giver, God himself, we can't help but do anything else but be generous with the things that he too has given to us. See, when they surrendered their lives to Christ, their grip on the things of the world was loosened and their grip on the things of God namely each other, was tightened. Here's the one thing I hope that you'll learn from the end of Acts chapter 4. It's this. The more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the more generous we will become. I'm going to say that again. The more you and I fix our eyes on Jesus, the more generous we will become. Greed, by very definition, means I'm looking at me and not other people. I'm interested in what I get out of this and not what others get out of this. But what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? To consider others more significant than yourself. Why? Who was the greatest example of that? 
Christ Jesus, who considered you more significant than him and went and died in your place when he didn't commit any sin. And we learn from the life of Christ what it looks like to give not only generously, but sacrificially. And that's what the life of Jesus was all about. So when you read the end of Acts chapter 4, there's really two things we have to take note of. One, the people gave generously to the church. And then two, the church gave generously to people. Isn't that interesting? One of the things I've told you a long time ago is I really want Eagles Landing to be known as a generous body of believers. Do you know that the only way that we as a church will be known by our generosity is if the people that make up Eagles Landing are generous first? As you show your generosity, we get to put that same generosity on display for a watching world. The only reason we've been able to bless so many different people throughout the past year is because at the end of last year, you gave generously so that we could bless other people generously. And those funds we've been using to see churches planted in places like Nashville and Miami and Greenville and all over the world, these, these funds that have been used, they've not been just wasted so people can pay parking lots. No, they've been actually used so that people can come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So we've been trying to report those things to you so that you can see that the dollars that you gave are actually going not to temporal you know, things of the earth, they're actually going to things that are making an eternal difference. So at the end of chapter 4, Luke gives us a positive example of what generosity looks like. After these verses, after verses 35, he actually gets more specific. And he hones in on one individual, a guy by the name of Barnabas. And he said Barnabas was a great example of what generosity looks like. Yes, all the people that had land was going and selling it and bringing their possessions to the church or bringing their, 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 the profit to the church. But he says Barnabas was one specific example of this. And then... In chapter 5, Luke is going to give us a negative example of generosity. He's saying we are being introduced now to a guy by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and Luke is going to use their story to show us, in contrast to Barnabas' story, what generosity does not look like. So let's go back to Acts chapter 5. It says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Brief recap. There's two stories here. The first story is the church. The story is told specifically about Barnabas. What does he do? He brings all of his proceeds and lays them down and gives them to the church. Story number two, here in Acts chapter 5, Ananias sells a field. What does he do? He only brings a portion of his proceeds and lays them down. So at first glance, when you look at these two chapters, if you don't read them, what you will actually see at just at first glance is it looks like Ananias' actions are the same as Barnabas' actions. They both had, both had property, they both had land, they both went and sold it, and they both brought money and gave it to the church. So at first glance, this is a commendable thing. In fact, if we assume the best in Ananias, and I think we should, he probably walks into this situation with very good intentions. I believe his intentions might have been pure. Now, I certainly don't want to read too much into the text, but I do think the text allows us a little leniency here. He probably heard that others were selling their land. We certainly know that he heard that Barnabas was. He probably heard that others were selling their land, and he probably had a thought that went like this, you know? So, Sapphira, we have land. We could actually sell our land and give the proceeds to the church and donate that money too. 
Perhaps he was hearing from people, man, did you hear what Barnabas had done? Man, Barnabas was so faithful and and he was so generous. He and his family, they had this land that was located over there and they went and they sold it. And everything they made from that land, they brought it and they just laid it at the apostles' feet. So as Ananias and Sapphira have this conversation, what do they do? The Bible tells us they plot out a plan and this plan is rooted in deception. They want to give the perception that they're selling their land and giving all of the money to the church when in reality they're intentionally keeping some of the money for themselves. Here's what you need to hear this morning, church, because I know this text is is hard. In fact, you're probably going to think in just a moment, man, that was very harsh. (laughs) But, But right now it's hard. The failure here is not that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give the right amount. That's not their failure. God isn't going to strike them down or even strike them dead because they didn't give at a certain level. The failure here is that they said they were giving it all when in reality they were only given a portion. Now why would they do this? Why would Ananias and Sapphira plot up this plan? Why would they deceive their own brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would they want their brothers and sisters to think they were giving it all? When in reality, they're only given a portion. The answer is really, really simple. It's called pride. It's called pride. Pride had filled their heart. They were lying because they were trying to impress the people around them. And before we point our finger at them, we have to first think of how we do this in our own individual lives. We deceive people to think that life is much better than it actually is just because we want them to think that we have it all together. We walk into church with a mask and a facade every single week wanting people to be convinced that our our lives are really, really going well. When in reality, we are a miserable mess inside. It's deception. They wanted to appear to be something that they really weren't. You know what that's called? It's called hypocrisy. It's called hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is frowned upon by God. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let's look at verse 3. It says this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Listen to what, what Peter says. While it remained unsold, did not it remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? He's saying you could have did anything you want with it. It was yours. You weren't at fault for that. And then he says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. Do you realize every time that you two put on the mask and every time you put on the facade, you're not deceiving man. You're not lying to man. You're lying to God. You know what I find fascinating about this? If you look at the beginning of verse 3, he says he's filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. You look at the end of verse 4, he says you've lied to God. Which one is it, Peter? Did we lie to the Holy Spirit or did he lie to God? They're the same, right? The author, Luke, is actually reminding us of the Trinity here, isn't he, a little bit. The Trinity is that God is one person in three distinct personalities. And when you think about this, he's taking you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, the very first verse, it says, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word God there in Genesis chapter 1 is the word Elohim. That Hebrew word Elohim, it's a plural word that has singular usage. Interesting. There's 
a plurality of people at work, but it's being used as a word that there's one person at work. It's the Trinity. <clears throat> Verse 2, two chapters into the whole beginning of your Bible. It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So only two verses into your Bible, the Spirit of God's already present. He's present in verse 1, but he's made himself really present in verse 2. Then you jump all the way down to verse 26 and 27, it says, God says, God says, let us, plural, make man in our own image, our plural, and then it says, in the image of God, he made them. You see this interchange between the plural use and the singular use of the word God. Why? Because God is one distinct person, but he's in, he exists in three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Luke is kind of reminding us of that Holy Spirit. But here's what you really need to see in this text. It says in verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, you've heard the word filled used several times throughout the past few chapters. You've heard it used several times throughout the past few chapters. This was the language that Luke used to describe what the Holy Spirit was doing in his people. You remember? That he was filling his people. Do you see what Luke is saying? Peter's actually saying, but he's telling, Luke's telling the story. Peter's saying, instead of the Holy Spirit filling you, you are now allowing the very enemy of God to fill you. See, church, we have to understand what, what, what really the, the author is getting at here. If you remember the past few weeks, we've said it this way. We've said something like, when the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God, that brings a movement of God. We've said that for two or three weeks in a row. When the Spirit of God fills the people of God, that leads to a movement of God. And now what you're seeing in Acts chapter 5 is that when the people of God are filled with the enemy of God, the movement of God is now hindered. So we have to decide this morning as a church family, do we want to be a part of a movement that moves forward, or do we want to be a part of hindering the movement that God intends to do? And the way that we become a part of hindering the movement is we allow sin to enter our lives. When we give the enemy access to fill the place in our lives that rightly belongs to God, the movement of God comes to a crashing halt. Remember Jonah when we walked through Jonah? You remember when they weren't making much progress in the middle of the sea because of the storm? They were straining at rowing the boat, but the boat wasn't going anywhere. And they start to think, man, this must be because somebody's in sin that's on our boat. And they start casting lots trying to figure out who it is. Well, thank God Jonah stood up and said, man, it's me. And when they put him overboard, the movement continued. <laughs> they were able to move the boat again. It's the same concept. When sin is in the camp, it hinders the work of God. Listen, every one of us in this room are full of something. Now, there's a lot of different places we could go with that statement. But every one of us are full of something. The question is, is what will you be filled with? See, God in many ways designs you as a spiritual container. You were made to be filled. This is why you hear people say, I mean, I just feel so empty. And when they say, I feel so empty, what they're saying is, man, I feel like I don't have purpose. I feel like I don't have meaning. I feel like life's not important. It's not, I'm not making much of a difference. I just feel empty. God designs you to be a spiritual container. So if we are designed to be filled, the question remains, what will we be filled with? Well, in Acts chapter 2, the apostles, the Bible tells us, were full 
of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, the Bible tells us that even Jesus was what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist, the Bible tells us, was filled with the Holy Spirit. When Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that he was full of the Holy Spirit. When Peter and John healed the lame man, how did they do that? The Bible tells us they were filled with the Holy Spirit. When the apostles were whipped by the Jewish leaders, you, you heard about this. What, what happened? What was, what was going on with these apostles? They were full of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, is what will you be filled with? The Bible says in Acts chapter 5 and also in Acts chapter 13 that the Jewish religious leaders who were doing these things to men and women of faith, like Peter and John, putting them in jail, etc. What does it say that, that what, what, what was happening in their life? It says they were filled with envy. They were filled with jealousy. That's in your Bible. Go look at Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 13. So Peter's question to Ananias implies that Ananias is letting Satan fill his heart. You hear that? <clears throat> in other words, because you're a child of God, you belong to him. But when you allow sin in, you're letting Satan come and fill your heart. Church family, we, we've got to get this. When we're not honest, we're letting the enemy fill our heart. When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, we're letting the enemy in our heart. When we flirt with sin, no matter what sin that may be, no matter how big, no matter how small, we're opening the door and we're saying, Spirit of God, you can go out. Enemy, you now can come in. Where are you at this morning? Are you giving the enemy room to fill your heart? Listen, when you give the enemy room to fill your heart, there's no wonder things like bitterness and anger and resentment and frustration and all of that just swells up within you because you're giving him ground that's not rightly his. You're, you're allowing him to be in a place that's only intended to be occupied by God. It says in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard this. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Picture this for just a moment. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. Just like today, crisp air, the sun is out, the church is gathering on a Sunday morning. We came into this building, we sung some songs that exalted God and that were directed at God. We sung songs that remind us of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And somewhere in the middle of that set, the ushers come forward just like they did today. Someone prays, the buckets are passed, Ananias is among us, he's praying over his gift, he's getting ready to drop it in the bucket, and as soon as the bucket comes, he grabs it with one hand, drops his gift in with the other, passes it on, on to the other person, turns around to go back in a song, and before he can sing a lyric, he hits the floor. And he's dead, he's a goner. So what happened right here. Acts chapter 5. Here's what I find so interesting about this. Up to this point in the book of Acts, you remember in Acts chapter 2? Spirit of God comes upon the earth, the church gathers, and a great number of people were added to their number daily. Added to their number daily. Peter preaches at Pentecost, 
3,000 people come to know Jesus. Later, in the next chapter, 5,000 people come to know Jesus. God went from adding to their number daily to multiplying the number daily. And this is the first time in the life of the church that you see God not add nor multiply. You see God subtract. Here's what's interesting. Nowhere in Scripture will you ever see God divide. You'll only see him subtract. That's what he's doing here. God removes Ananias. I can't help but think about someone else that God removed. You remember a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot? God removed him as well. You remember, unlike Ananias, Judas was not a child of God. We know that. But like Ananias, Judas was a pretender. We know that as well. Remember how he pretended to be a caring disciple? I think it was in John chapter 12. Mary had this ointment, expensive ointment. She put it on the feet of Jesus. She washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And what did Judas Iscariot say? Why would you do that? Why would you waste expensive ointment on someone's feet? And then what does he say? We could have sold that ointment and gave that money to the poor. That, man, that sounds like a caring disciple, doesn't it? Man, I care so much about the poor that if we would have sold this expensive thing and got a lot of money, we could have actually done a lot of good work for the poor. And then John comes back and says, let me, let me give you a little bit of insight on what's really going on here. <laughs> he says, you know what Judas' job is? He's the one who keeps the money. <laughs> He's the one who counts the money. And he says, so if you would have sold it and you would have gave money, he's a thief. He would have put the money in his pocket and went on. He was a pretender. When he was acting like he cared about the poor, he was just pretending. What's John showing us about Judas? Judas was a hypocrite. He wanted you to think one thing when in reality he was something, something so, so much different. Do you know what hypocrisy is? Hypocrisy is the gap between public persona and private character. That's what it is. I want the public to think this about me when in reality this is the truth about me. To put it simply, it's the failure to practice what you preach. Hypocrisy is not a follower of Jesus who struggles with sin. We all struggle with sin. Hypocrisy is not a follower of Jesus who fights against temptation. We all fight against temptation. There's going to be days where we fail and we get back up and we move on. Hypocrisy instead is a person who gives the perception that they are one way when in reality they are a totally different way. It's when we pretend to be walking with God while secretly delighting and indulging in sin. High schooler, you can say that you love Jesus and you can put Jesus on your Instagram profile and your Facebook profile and you can act like you love him by bringing your Bible to school and even to church. And you can be faithful in your attendance, but if you're sleeping with your girlfriend or doing things even remotely like that, you're a pretender. It's called hypocrisy. Now, adult, before we nod our head in agreement, the same thing is true. If you're going to cheat on your taxes, it's called a pretender. If you're going to be dishonest with people just because you don't think they can handle the truth, it's called a pretender. If you're not going to be honest and forthright and be the person that you claim to be, it's no less than anything else that's happening. And these people are secretly delighting and indulging in their sin. Verse 7, we got to move quickly. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. Peter is now giving her a way out. Peter's saying, listen, your husband's now dead. Because he lied. He schemed and plotted a plan of deceit. 
And he says, tell me, whether you sold the lamb for so much, all she had to do at this moment is say, no, we did not do that. It gives her a chance to be real. By the way, just parenthetically, I want to say this. Ephesians 5 is really, 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 really clear, and I think we all get it. It says in verse 22 that wives are to submit to the spiritual leadership of their husbands. Listen, wives, I want to talk to you real quick. Submission to your husband does not mean to follow him into sin, okay? This would have helped her to know that. And secondly, husbands, something we need to understand is our sin not only affects us, it affects our family and those around us. Okay, so let's carry on. And she said, yes, for so much. So she lies. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they're now going to carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. When the young man came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The Bible says great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Fear didn't only fall upon the believers in the church. Fear fell upon the people that were outside the church too, Peter says. So fear came and filled them all. Do you know why so many of us fall prey to sin? Do you know why so many of us are pretenders and make excuses for our sin? It's not because we forget God's love. It's because we don't fear God. It's because we don't fear God. Proverbs 8 says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The reason teenagers fall into sinful relationships is because they don't fear the Lord. It's that simple. The reason we lie, the reason we cheat, the reason we steal is because we don't fear God. The reason we grow bitter is because we don't fear God. The reason we gossip is because we don't fear God. The reason we store up anger in our heart is because we don't fear God. The reason we skip church is because we don't fear God. The reason people fall morally is because we don't fear God. The reason you and I flirt around and flounder in sin is because we don't fear God. The reason so many leaders in so many churches fall is because they don't fear God. I tell my wife this all the time. The only reason I am faithful to her, there's two. One is because I fear her. (laughs) If I were to do something stupid, you would find me dismembered in the field, okay? I kid. I, I don't kid, but I kid. But the real reason is because I I have a fear of God in my life. And the day that that fear of God does not reside in me is the day I'm on a downward spiral to destruction. We need a healthy fear of the Lord to be restored in our lives. Now, I want to run through this real quick. Listen, if you and I are going to be all in in our relationship with Jesus, there's four quick things I I think we need to understand, okay? This is how we're ending. Four quick things. First, if we're going to be all in, Giving should not be done out of duty, but delight. Our giving should not be done out of duty. We shouldn't give tithes and offerings because we feel morally obligated to do so. We should give out of delight. Second Corinthians talks about this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully, reaps bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Listen, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We have to give not out of duty, but out of delight. All in. Second, okay, told you it's going to be real quick. The van's coming up real quick. It's number two, we must beware of what rules our heart. Listen, church, don't, don't overlook this. We have to beware of what rules our heart. Two things controlled the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. One, the love, they loved the praise of people. Two, they loved money. Those two things ruled their heart. 
Barnabas had some others, or, and some others were being celebrated. They were being praised because of what they did. And Ananias and Sapphira think, well, man, if we act like we do the same thing, they'll praise us. And they love the praise of people. So what did they do? They deceived people to believe that they were really doing something that they weren't actually doing. They put money in their pockets rather than doing what they said they were doing. They loved not only money, but they also loved the praise of people. Let me, let me sum it up by saying this, church. If the love of God is not enough for us, we will desperately seek the praise of men, and we'll do whatever it takes to get that praise. And some of you, you are fighting to be accepted and approved by the people in your life that really do not matter. The only person that matters is God, and he's the one that we're turning our back on. Number three, if we're going to be all in, we can hide from people. We need to understand this. We can hide from people, but we cannot hide from God. You can hide from people, but you can't hide from God. It's difficult for us to know who is genuinely seeking to follow the Lord. It's hard for me to know if you're faking it or if you're genuine in your approach. But what you need to understand is nothing is hidden from God. There's not one area of your life this morning that the Holy Spirit of God does not know of. He tells us this. There's nowhere you can go to hide from him. He knows every single detail about you. And for Ananias and Sapphira, and even for us today, it is easy for us to fool those around us. It's easy for us to become imitators. We outwardly do all the right things. We attend church, we pray, we serve, we put social, you know, social media blasts out there about our favorite scriptures or whatever. But deep down, we lack a genuine love for God and his people. Again, the praise of people and the love of money so consumed the hearts and the lives of Ananias and Sapphira that they forgot that God's opinion of them was the only one that ultimately mattered. And ma'am, sir, teenager, all I can do this morning is encourage you this way. Stop trying to put on a front. Today, listen, today is the day of freedom for you. It's the day of freedom for you. You can lay all your secrets before the Lord and you can truly and genuinely experience his grace today if you do it. And I promise you, experiencing the grace of God is much greater than any pretending that you'll ever be able to do. And if we're going to be all in for God, there's one fourth and final thing, and that is this. We need to understand that God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously, even when we might try to treat sin flippantly. He takes sin seriously. Listen, the seriousness of sin is determined not by just the act itself, but to whom the act is committed against. You hear that? You and I, we like to put sin in categories when really sin is in relationship. When you sin, you sin against someone. You sin namely against God. Even when you gossip against your brother, your sister in Christ, you're not just sinning against them. More importantly, you're sinning against God. And church, hear me. If you and I want to be a movement that moves for the glory of God, we've got to bury our sin at the altar this morning. Here's my, here's my charge. Balcony, those on the floor, here it is. Don't be the person who hinders the movement. Don't be the Jonah on the ship. Just come before God. Just repent. It's a beautiful thing. And say, God, this morning, all I need is you. Some of you, you know that you have no relationship with the Lord, and today's the day of your salvation. 
we're gonna trust and we're gonna pray that the Lord will remove all of the sin from our life this morning so that we can be a part of what he wants to do both in us and through us for his glory. Father, we need you this morning. Work in a way that only you can work and do a work that only you can do. We'll give you all the honor and all the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? In tenderness, he saw me. Weary and sick with sin.
Grace that brought me to the full 